we're going to talk about the future of nonprofits. So Professor Lankowski talked about big picture of social entrepreneurship. There's this TEDx talk by Dan Pallotta, which has been viewed by over 3 million people, talking about basically the future of nonprofits, and it's very much linked with social innovation and social entrepreneurship. It's been translated into 27 different languages, so it has a very large global impact. Like nonprofits, NGOs around the world are very interested in this theme that he talks on. What I like about it, and it's a longer video, it's 15 minutes long, but we're going to break it up into sections. But he gives a very good critical assessment of the nonprofit sector. And so a lot of times we look at the nonprofit sector as being all good, and we don't really step back and say, well, what are some problems with it, or what are some ruts that the nonprofit sector has gotten into? And I think he does a great job of critiquing it, but not just slamming it down. He then provides alternatives, options for improving the nonprofit sector. So I really think for all of you going into the nonprofit sector, if you can be on top of the things that he talks about, it can really put you at an advantage of being a leader in the social sector. We're going to watch like a couple minutes, then I'll stop. And we'll talk a bit about it and then continue on with the video. I want to talk about social innovation and social entrepreneurship. I happen to have triplets. They're little, they're five years old. Sometimes I tell people I have triplets, they say, really, how many? <laughs> Here's a picture of the kids, that's Sage and Annalisa and Ryder. Now, I also happen to be gay. Being gay and fathering triplets is by far the most socially innovative, socially entrepreneurial thing I have ever done. The real social innovation I want to talk about involves charity. I want to talk about how the things we've been taught to think about giving and about charity and about the nonprofit sector are actually undermining the causes we love and our profound yearning to change the world. But before I do that, I want to ask if we even believe that the nonprofit sector has any serious role to play in changing the world. A lot of people say now that business will lift up the developing economies and social business will take care of the rest. And I do believe that business will move the great mass of humanity forward. But it always leaves behind that 10% or more that is most disadvantaged or unlucky. And social business needs markets, and there are some issues for which you just can't develop the kind of money measures that you need for a market. I sit on the board of a Center for the Developmentally Disabled, and these people want laughter and compassion, and they want love. How do you monetize that? And that's where the nonprofit sector and philanthropy come in. Philanthropy is the market for love. It is the market for all those people for whom there is no other market coming. And so if we really want, like Buckminster Fuller said, a world that works for everyone, with no one and nothing left out, then the nonprofit sector has to be a serious part of the conversation. But it doesn't seem to be working. Why have our breast cancer charities not come close to finding... So he makes this claim of... You have businesses that are helping, in a sense, the developing world to develop economies. You have social businesses that are like the social entrepreneur, um, social sector businesses that provide a social service but do it 
in a way of generating personal revenue. And then you have the traditional service-providing nonprofits for which there is no market. Can you think of particular social issues or problems that cannot be marketed or for which there can't be any type of revenue-generating option? He mentioned people with disabilities. Are there a lot of issues out there that they're just simply this idea of having earned income or revenue-generating model? Do you guys believe that? I think you can monetize anything, especially when it comes to uh, care or assistance for anybody with any form of handicap. Uh, it's a huge multi-million, uh, probably billion dollar business. And even though we don't think of the money first when it comes to those topics, mm -hmm. that's what different departments within those organizations are thinking about. Like I went, I had to go up to the third floor of SPIA today and talk to the IT guys there. Mm -hmm. and. SPIA became super corporate all of a sudden, and I just, I had never experienced that here, and uh -huh. it was really off-putting, so... Yeah, so you're saying that you could... You can monetize anything. But where would the money come? Like, what are some of the issues that some of you would say, there's no way to have a profit-generating model into this service or activity? Yeah. Um, like, environmental causes? Okay, environment, yeah. He mentioned that the people he worked with were wanting just to be able to laugh and have people to spend time with, and I don't think you can really put a monetary value on that. Okay, so like, pop place, you could say, okay, we're providing housing for people. What's a way that we could generate revenue from homeless people? Oh, well, we could charge rent at a highly reduced rate. And so we're not going to be completely relying on grants from foundations in the government, but we're actually going to have some revenue-generating aspect of it from homeless people, that they're going to be paying rent. So monetizing in the sense of, is there a service or activity that you're providing that you could actually get fees for services from? I mean, I understand what you're saying. How can you put a value on love and laughter? But what he was saying, like, if you're serving people with significant disabilities, are you going to charge them to be your friend? And he's saying, well, no. You, wouldn't do that. You'd rely on volunteers and, and social service workers to help. So for the environment, at the end of the day, who's going to pay for saving the baby turtles? The baby turtles, they can't generate revenue. They're going to rely on donations. Or you could think of possible ways to generate revenue, like pictures of the baby turtles that you sell. So are there certain issues out there that there's no way we could generate revenue. So the Chad refugees, would you say there's no way to generate revenue or? Like from them or just in general? From the idea. Not necessarily, but like from them, yes. When we, that part of the project, we had a hard time figuring out like, well, should we charge them for the counseling services uh -huh. we're gonna provide? You know, when like they're struggling, you know, and like financially and in whatever aspect, yeah. but I don't think that it's like impossible to get revenue. Your idea of the partner organization, find an organization out there that has some type of ties to refugees or to the developing world and say, whenever anyone buys one of your t-shirts, can you give 10% to, it is a donation, but it's also, it could probably help them sell t-shirts too. So there's a, a revenue generating aspect to it. So he's basically making a claim that 10% of all the issues that nonprofits are addressing cannot have a revenue generating component. What he is saying is, and it's sort of a critique of social entrepreneurs who say, all we need in the world are businesses to run the everyday life, and then social businesses 
to help people who are in need. And that's what people would say. You don't even need nonprofits. It's a flawed model to rely on donations or to rely on government funding. You should really just start a social business. If there's an issue you care about, start with starting a social business. Don't start with a nonprofit and do fundraising, but just start with a social business. And he's saying, but there's some issues out there that are just either the people are in such great need or have such limited resources that you really actually need nonprofits that are fully funded by philanthropists and foundations. Is that a valid claim to say there are some types of issues that can only be addressed through philanthropic giving and charitable work versus lumping it into this social business model? Yeah. One that I kept thinking of that I was debating was um, like the idea of like geriatrics because I think nursing homes and things like that they just are like capitalizing upon the people being old and having like, no other options. Uh -huh. So as for the elderly that can't afford nursing homes or assisted living and things like that, I think that that's mm -hmm. like something that doesn't bring in like a fiscal amount like another organization. Sure, a population that has limited resources or in high needs. Basically, their resources can't pay for the extent of the needs that they have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we watched this TED Talk in another one of my classes actually like last week, and something we really talked about was with that claim, there's probably a lot of truth behind it, because saying that every single nonprofit can be changed to a social entrepreneurship type model, there's exceptions for almost everything in the world, and so saying that like 10% of nonprofits you probably could not do that with seems very realistic. That's a claim that I would buy into. Uh -huh. He's probably right, but I'm an optimist, and I like to be creative and innovative. And so even with the geriatrics, I instantly think of possible ways to partner with companies such that, you know, like the red campaign, I don't even know who started it, but basically you see those red t-shirts everywhere, and that's for a cause that can't itself generate revenue. But when they started the red campaign and are selling t-shirts, it's a revenue generating thing. Like there's a product being sold and a portion of the profits are going towards the cause. And so with geriatrics or with the environment or marginalized populations, like Tom's shoes, they could say, how can people in the developing world afford to buy our shoes? It's just not possible. They don't have the money to do it. And yet they said, well, let's be creative and think of a way to do this without just saying we're gonna set up shop as a nonprofit and start raising money. They said, let's think of a way that this could be sustainable and scalable to a global impact. And so, it's something to think about. Our default is to say, well, they don't have the resources, they can't afford it, the needs are too great. But I would say, oh, come on, let's be creative. There's always a market for a lot of things. Maybe there are some things for which there isn't a market or it needs to get started, but his critique is, that the nonprofit sector has been stifled in many ways, and so he offers some solutions for that. But for breast cancer, or our homeless charities not come close to ending homelessness in any major city? Why has poverty remained stuck at 12% of the U.S. population for 40 years? And the answer is, these social problems are massive in scale. Our organizations are tiny up against them, and we have a belief system that keeps them tiny. We have two rule books. We have one for the nonprofit sector and one for the rest of the economic world. It's an apartheid, and it discriminates against the nonprofit sector in five different areas, the first being compensation. 
So in the for-profit sector, the more value you produce, the more money you can make. But we don't like nonprofits to use money to incentivize people to produce more in social service. We have a visceral reaction to the idea that anyone would make very much money helping other people. Interesting that we don't have a visceral reaction to the notion that people would make a lot of money not helping other people. You know, you want to make $50 million selling violent video games to kids, go for it, we'll put you on the cover of Wired magazine, but you want to make half a million dollars trying to cure kids of malaria and you're considered a parasite yourself. And we think of this as our system of ethics, but what we don't realize is that this system has a powerful side effect, which is it gives a really stark, mutually exclusive choice between doing very well for yourself and your family or doing good for the world to the brightest minds coming out of our best universities and sends tens of thousands of people who can make a huge difference in the nonprofit sector marching every year directly into the for-profit sector because they're not willing to make that kind of lifelong economic sacrifice. Business Week did a survey, looked at the compensation packages for MBAs 10 years out of business school. And the median compensation for a Stanford MBA with bonus at the age of 38 was $400,000. Meanwhile, for the same year, the average salary for the CEO of a $5 million plus medical charity in the U.S. was $232,000, and for a hunger charity, $84,000. Now, there's no way you're going to get a lot of people with $400,000 talent to make a $316,000 sacrifice every year to become the CEO of a hunger charity. Some people say, well, that's just because those MBA types are greedy. Not necessarily. They might be smart. It's cheaper for that person to donate $100,000 every year to the hunger charity, save $50,000 on their taxes, so still be roughly $270,000 a year ahead of the game, now be called a philanthropist because they donated $100,000 to charity, probably sit on the board of the hunger charity, indeed probably supervise the poor SOB who decided to become the CEO of the hunger charity, and have a lifetime of this kind of power and influence and popular praise still ahead of them. The second area of discrimination is advertising and marketing. So we tell the for-profit sector, spend, spend, spend on advertising until the last dollar no longer produces a penny of value. But we don't like to see our donations spent on advertising and charity. Our attitude is, well look, if you can get the advertising donated, you know, at 4 o'clock in the morning, I'm okay with that. But I don't want my donations spent on advertising, I want it to go to the needy. As if the money invested in advertising could not bring in dramatically greater sums of money to serve the needy. In the 1990s, my company created the long-distance AIDS ride bicycle journeys and the 60-mile-long breast cancer three-day walks. And over the course of nine years, we had 182,000 ordinary heroes participate, and they raised a total of $581 million. They raised, they raised more money more quickly for these causes than any events in history, all based on the idea that people are weary of being asked to do the least they can possibly do. People are yearning to measure the full distance of their potential on behalf of the causes that they care about deeply. But they have to be asked. We got that many people to participate by buying full-page ads in the New York Times and the Boston Globe and primetime radio and TV advertising. Do you know how many people we would have gotten if we put up flyers in the laundromat? 
charitable giving has remained stuck in the U.S. at 2% of GDP ever since we started measuring it in the 1970s. That's an important fact because it tells us that in 40 years, the nonprofit sector has not been able to wrestle any market share away from the for-profit sector. And if you think about it, how could one sector possibly take market share away from another sector if it isn't really allowed to market? And if we tell the consumer brands, you may advertise all the benefits of your product, but we tell charities, you cannot advertise all the good that you do, where do we think the consumer dollars are going to flow? The third area of discrimination is the taking of risk in pursuit of new ideas for generating revenue. So Disney can make a new $200 million movie that flops, and nobody calls the Attorney General. But you do a little $1 million community fundraiser for the poor, and it doesn't produce a 75% profit to the cause in the first 12 months, and your character's called into question. So nonprofits are really reluctant to attempt any brave, daring, giant-scale new fundraising endeavors for fear that if the thing fails, their reputations will be dragged through the mud. Well, you and I know when you prohibit failure, you kill innovation. If you kill innovation in fundraising, you can't raise more revenue. If you can't raise more revenue, you can't grow. And if you can't grow, you can't possibly solve large social problems. The fourth area is time. So Amazon went for six years without returning any profit to investors, and people had patience. They knew that there was a long-term objective down the line of building market dominance. But if a nonprofit organization ever had a dream of building magnificent scale that required that for six years no money was going to go to the needy, it was all going to be invested in building this scale, we would expect a crucifixion. And the last area is profit itself. So the for-profit sector can pay people profits in order to attract their capital for their new ideas, but you can't pay profits in a non-profit sector. So the for-profit sector has a lock on the multi-trillion dollar capital markets, and the non-profit sector is starved for growth and risk and idea capital. When you put those five things together, you can't use money to lure talent away from the for-profit sector. You can't advertise on anywhere near the scale the for-profit sector does for new customers. You can't take the kinds of risks in pursuit of those customers that the for-profit sector takes. You don't have the same amount of time to find them as the for-profit sector, and you don't have a stock market with which to fund any of this, even if you could do it in the first place, and you've just put the non-profit sector at an extreme disadvantage to the for-profit sector on every level. If we have any doubts about the effects of this separate rule book, this statistic is sobering. From 1970 to 2009, the number of nonprofits that really grew, that crossed the $50 million annual revenue barrier, is 144. In the same time, the number of for-profits that crossed it is 46,136. So we're dealing with social problems that are massive in scale, and our organizations can't generate any scale. All of the scale goes to Coca-Cola and Burger King. When you look at his five issues that he says are stifling the nonprofit sector, compensation, being inhibited from doing marketing and advertising, being inhibited from taking risk and being innovative, having that much shorter compressed timeline for producing outcomes, and even the opportunity to provide profit earnings to allow people to invest in your organization and you return a profit to them, sort of like a social impact bond. Which of these five, just as you hear his arguments or his claims, which of these five stand out to you or just seem to be critical? Um, advertising and marketing stand out to me because 
I feel like if you advertise like the mission or like their cause, it's mm -hmm. like kind of going with their mission as well. Uh huh. So they're promoting the issue. Yeah, I don't see it as a bad thing. Hand in hand with trying to raise money. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think compensation is probably the worst one because it affects all the other ones. And mm -hmm. it's like that's the reason that you can't take risks or you don't have enough advertising and marketing money. So I think if you could change that one, it would change a lot of other things. Because of the type of people that it would attract? or the mindset, they would change the mindset of... I mean, we have a great experiment going on here at IU, and it's right across the street from each other. You have Kelly students, and you have the SPIA students, and there's this idea that if you transfer from Kelly over to SPIA, you're taking a significant pay cut, because you're doing something for the social good or the greater good, versus the for-profit sector. And, you know, what he said about the talent drain, people just don't even consider the social sector as a possible career path if they're thinking, well, how am I going to cover the expenses of the type of life that I'm hoping to pursue? So, which ones stand out as, like, that is problematic, and I don't know why it is that way. Yeah. I mean, I would say I feel like it's all pretty valid, and it seems to be, like, this kind of, like, crappy double standard of, like, what's wrong and what's right, and I just feel like, I really am buying what he's saying, and I just feel like if the nonprofit sector was able to not be negatively shined upon for investing more in all of these things that then we could potentially lead to that better outcome like he's saying and I like fully believe that but it's just hard how do you change everybody's mindset when they're already kind of geared in the way that it's been so. sure yeah and yeah and just in general like all of these things the nonprofit can like use it to go towards their mission and like mm -hmm. people don't see it that way Mm -hmm. And so, like, all these things can be good and can make them grow, in mm -hmm. a sense. Yeah. I mean, I think of it even like, if, if you go to a church, and the church oftentimes publishes their budget, and they publish the minister's salary, and there's always this sort of like, well, the minister should make more than I make, because the minister is taking this vow of poverty. Or just like a CEO of a nonprofit should make more than I make, because they're doing something for a social cause. Veronica. Yeah, I feel like a lot of that relates to like the lecture we had on building capacity mm -hmm. because they think like all the money and all the time needs to be going towards the mission, which if they like understood that building up the organization will make it much more efficient and like you can do those things much easier, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it, it would work out a lot of problems. Sure. So Facebook, when they bought WhatsApp, they received so much criticism. They're like, why? I don't know how many billions they paid for WhatsApp, but now just this past week, Zuckerberg is talking about creating the ultimate app where basically everything funnels through their social media platform and it eliminates the need for other apps and even Google. And the idea is they were building scale for a much grander plan. So. You know, they could have been criticized on the short end of saying, well, why would you spend so much for this? But they said, well, we had a vision for scaling to such a magnitude that we required these things to make that happen. A lot of times, especially with nonprofits, it's like, well, why are you expanding? You know, then you get criticized for it. So you guys probably believe or are pretty much in agreement with Dan, but the idea is how do you then convey to others or argue your point of maybe we should shift or change our mindset. And so he's going to spend the last three minutes concluding his thoughts on this. So why do we think this way? Well, like most fanatical dogma in America, these ideas come from old Puritan beliefs. 
The Puritans came here for religious reasons, or so they said, but they also came here because they wanted to make a lot of money. They were pious people, but they were also really aggressive capitalists. And they were accused of extreme forms of profit-making tendencies compared to the other colonists. But at the same time, the Puritans were Calvinists. So they were taught literally to hate themselves. They were taught that self-interest was a raging sea that was a sure path to eternal damnation. Well, this created a real problem for these people, right? Here they've come all the way across the Atlantic to make all this money. Making all this money will get you sent directly to hell. What were they to do about this? Well, charity became their answer. It became this economic sanctuary where they could do penance for their profit-making tendencies. at five cents on the dollar. So, of course, how could you make money in charity if charity was your penance for making money? Financial incentive was exiled from the realm of helping others so that it could thrive in the area of making money for yourself. And in 400 years, nothing has intervened to say that's counterproductive and that's unfair. Now, this ideology gets policed by this one very dangerous question, which is what percentage of my donation goes to the cause versus overhead? There are a lot of problems with this question. I'm going to just focus on two. First, it makes us think that overhead is a negative, that it is somehow not part of the cause. But it absolutely is, especially if it's being used for growth. Now, this idea that overhead is somehow an enemy of the cause creates the second, much larger problem, which is it forces organizations to go without the overhead things they really need to grow in the interest of keeping overhead low. So we've all been taught that charity should spend as little as possible on overhead things like fundraising under the theory that, well, the less money you spend on fundraising, the more money there is available for the cause. Well, that's true if it's a depressing world in which this pie cannot be made any bigger. But if it's a logical world in which investment in fundraising actually raises more funds and makes the pie bigger, then we have it precisely backwards and we should be investing more money, not less in fundraising, because fundraising is the one thing that has the potential to multiply the amount of money available for the cause that we care about so deeply. I'll give you two examples. We launched the AIDS rides with an initial investment of $50,000 in risk capital. Within nine years, we had multiplied that 1,982 times into $108 million after all expenses for AIDS services. We launched the breast cancer three days with an initial investment of $350,000 in risk capital. Within just five years, we had multiplied that 554 times into $194 million after all expenses for breast cancer research. Now, if you were a philanthropist really interested in breast cancer, what would make more sense? Go out and find the most innovative researcher in the world and give her $350,000 for research, or give her a fundraising department the $350,000 to multiply it into $194 million for breast cancer research. 2002 was our most successful year ever. We netted for breast cancer alone, that year alone, $71 million after all expenses. And then we went out of business, suddenly and traumatically. Why? Well, the short story is our sponsor split on us. They wanted to distance themselves from us because we were being crucified in the media for investing 40% of the gross in recruitment and customer service and the magic of the experience 
and there is no accounting terminology to describe that kind of investment in growth and in the future other than this demonic label of overhead. So on one day, all 350 of our great employees lost their jobs because they were labeled overhead. Our sponsor went and tried the events on their own. The overhead went up. Net income for breast cancer research went down by 84% or $60 million in one year. This is what happens when we confuse morality with frugality. We've all been taught that the bake sale with 5% overhead is morally superior to the professional fundraising enterprise with 40% overhead. But we're missing the most important piece of information, which is what is the actual size of these pies? Who cares if the bake sale only has 5% overhead if it's tiny? What if the bake sale only netted $71 for charity because it made no investment in its scale and the professional fundraising enterprise netted $71 million because it did? Now which pie would we prefer and which pie do we think people who are hungry would prefer? Here's how all of this impacts the big picture. I said that charitable giving is 2% of GDP in the United States, that's about $300 billion a year. But only about 20% of that, or $60 billion, goes to health and human services causes. The rest goes to religion and higher education and hospitals. And that $60 billion is not nearly enough to tackle these problems. But if we could move charitable giving from 2% of GDP up just one step just one step to 3% of GDP by investing in that growth, that would be an extra $150 billion a year in contributions. And if that money could go disproportionately to health and human services charities, because those were the ones we encouraged to invest in their growth, that would represent a tripling of contributions to that sector. Now we're talking scale. Now we're talking the potential for real change. But it's never going to happen by forcing these organizations to lower their horizons to the demoralizing objective of keeping their overhead low. Our generation does not want its epitaph to read, we kept charity overhead low. We wanted to read that we changed the world and that part of the way we did that was by changing the way we think about these things. So the next time you're looking at a charity, don't ask about the rate of their overhead. Ask about the scale of their dreams, their Apple, Google, Amazon scale dreams. How they measure their progress toward those dreams and what resources they need to make them come true regardless of what the overhead is. Who cares what the overhead is if these problems are actually getting solved? If we can have that kind of generosity, a generosity of thought, then the nonprofit sector can play a massive role in changing the world for all those citizens most desperately in need of it to change. And if that can be our generation's enduring legacy, that we took responsibility for the thinking that had been handed down to us, that we revisited it, we revised it and we reinvented the whole way humanity thinks about changing things forever. For everyone? Well, I thought I would let the kids sum up what that would be. That would be a real social innovation. Thank you very much. Thank you.
one of the main takeaways that I see from his talk is you have two options. The paradigm is either reducing overhead to increase the money that you can put towards addressing the cause, or increasing the overall pie of money that comes in through fund development. And it is striking, you know, that flat line of 2% of GDP. And basically what he's saying is, what is a way that we can get individuals and organizations to contribute more to social causes? And it shouldn't be that hard. And so all these campaigns, whether they're truly just 100% philanthropic or these hybrid type things like the Red Campaign or Tom's Shoes, at the end of the day, all of those are charitable contributions. Because Tom's could either put all that money back into their business or they can donate the shoes. It doesn't really matter, is this a philanthropic organization or is this a hybrid organization? The idea is what percentage of your profits, whether it's your personal profits, of your salary, or of your organization, are going towards charitable causes. And it just seems like a no-brainer that the, the aspiration should be to expand the pie versus, well, let's keep reducing our overhead so that we can increase how much we can spend on social causes. And you all are very creative people. You have the passion, and so then it's thinking through strategically, how do we increase people's involvement, not just their personal involvement, but also finances. How can we make it easy for them to give? How can we make it compelling for them to give? And if we all can be a part of increasing people's generosity, because that's ultimately what we're aspiring to do. This is people's money that they either want to keep or give away. And so how can we be about increasing people's generosity, an aspect of the social sector that oftentimes gets overlooked? It's very helpful for big picture, for thinking about the future of nonprofits and how social innovation and social entrepreneurship fits into that. So that's all. If you have any questions about specific sections, I'll be around. Otherwise, enjoy your weekend.